sing that song in a long time. We sang it in French last week, which we were all trying to remember the words to it. Thank you, Darren, and whoever suggested that, um, that we do that. Wow. Those are songs that you want to live your life for the Lord Jesus, and then you want them to sing that at your funeral. But you want to have the life so they can sing it. Isn't that true? Well, we're going to talk about that today. So you stand with me and take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We are going to read verses 4 through 11. There is no way in Sam's Hill will I make it through that. Because I want to get this out and get you with your moms this afternoon, your wives, the women in your life. But we will start our way through this. And I promise by the time we get to verse 11, whatever weeks that'll take, we will bow the knee in complete humility to what Christ has accomplished for us. The Bible reads this way, verse 4 of chapter 3 of Philippians, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is, uh, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, not that not that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You may be seated. Father, I think many, many in this room can say I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. And it's, Lord, it's because we've experienced you. You've made yourself known to us, Lord Jesus. And when we compare you to the things of this life, there is no comparison. We look at our religious efforts and we count them but loss. And so, Lord, our hearts are full this morning. As we have been reminded of great truths of worship this morning through song, we've been reminded of the blessing of biblical womanhood. And now, Lord, we turn to the scriptures and are reminded that we have an eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't get any better today. And so we thank you. We thank you for the joy of knowing Jesus. Bless this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to start as we begin to look at this with a reminder of where Paul is coming from. So I ask you, just as we start right away in the introduction state of the message, just go to Acts chapter 9. I want to read to you his conversion and what happened on that fateful day as Paul was on his way to try to destroy the church. He believed with all of his heart that he was doing things, he was doing the work of God. He believed that. But God had a different plan. And so I want to set the scene with his conversion here as we read through Acts chapter 9. Follow along with me. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that he, so if he found any belonging to the way, that's the church, an early term for the early church, both men and women, he didn't care, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and Though his eyes were open, he could not see nothing. And led him by hand, and they brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Turning back to our text, I wanted you to hear this conversion, this point where Paul and Christ met. It was on the road to Damascus. Damascus was a place where Christians had fled. There was freedom there for a little while. They were not as persecuted in Jerusalem. And so they had moved down the road into Damascus. But Paul was, or Saul in this case, was intent on rooting out Christians. We've seen that down through church history. Men that get a burn their saddle against Christ and his people and they love to root them out and destroy them. And believe me, that will come again. But Paul here is on the road. He is going there. And on this road to Damascus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ providentially crashes in to this proud, self-righteous Pharisee called Saul of Tarsus. Christ destroys his religious confidence And that's what we're going to hear today. He is going to revisit this religious confidence, this religious self-righteous confidence that he had in himself. And here now Christ has flooded truth and grace and the gospel into his heart. And if you don't believe that Jesus can change people, study Paul's life. He was mean. He was bad. And if you were a Christian, he would search you out and destroy your life. And he becomes one who speaks this way. We were tender as a nursing mother with you. In 1 Thessalonians 2. 
He goes from this man so hardened, so completely dominated by his self-righteous acts that God would accept him because of who he was and what he was doing and allow him into the kingdom to this absolutely broken man who didn't want anything else, didn't want any accolades except knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I think our text is an overwhelming text. To tell you the truth, it's hard to study. You look at this, and, and I hope you experience a little bit what I experience when I study this as we go through this over the next few weeks, is that you get up against this truth, this understanding of experiencing Christ in such a deep way, Lord, that you long for it. And when you stray, because we all stray, don't we? We all stray from that closeness of the Lord at times. We, I hope this text drives you to want to get back close to the feet of the Savior. And I hope it just grips your heart. Paul is battling constantly self-righteousness that is plaguing the churches that he planted. No sooner would Paul plant a church would those come from Jerusalem and from Judaism and try to plague the church. And they were very crafty in what they did. And if you want somebody to do what you want them to do, appeal to their flesh. Make them feel good about themselves. And you watch, they'll respond to that. Christian church uses that today. We call it kind of a seeker movement, a tickling ear movement that's in the church today. They never teach on sin. They don't teach on difficult issues within the Bible, what it has to say. They never do a church discipline. They would never touch any of those things because they appeal to the flesh and people come and they stay and they put lots of money and then, hey, we're good. So don't just put this towards Judaism. Or it, it, it moves throughout life. We see this constantly. If you want somebody to do what you want them to do, tell them how great they are. And that's come into the church. And it's dangerous. It is, it is like a cancer that begins in the cell in the body and starts to spread. Because self-righteousness denies, ultimately denies who Jesus is and what he accomplished for you. And Paul knew it. Paul knew that that's why he couldn't see Jesus before. That's why he went to kill people because of self-righteousness was stopping him from the full view of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And brothers and sisters, you and I struggle with this too. We have threads, little threads of self-righteousness that's in us. We, we will have a little check system sometimes and we'll see somebody else and we, we will make sure that we identify ourselves not with them or, or we're not like that or we don't do that. We must be careful. And I think this text highlights that so much. And he's going to do it in a fascinating way. He's going to say, hey, if you've got confidence in your flesh, let me tell you about post-conversion, Paul. He's going to take us through that. But see, post-conversion sometimes works its way into present conversion sometimes. We have to be careful of that. And Paul is going to land us smack dab in the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, experiencing Christ at a level that continues to grow daily as believers. 
and ultimately end up as resurrected souls in his presence. And that's where he wants to take us through this text. Let's start out with looking just at a couple of thoughts here. We'll see how far we get this morning. Number one, dying to our, to our identity of fleshly gain. Dying to the identity of our fleshly gain. We, we often put identity in things that don't have eternal value. I will find myself doing this from time to time. Worked up over a ball game or something, uh, you know, something that just doesn't have eternal value. We'll find our identity in those things. And when we find our identity in those things, we want everybody else to find their identity with us. So we try to drag them into those things. So there's, there's a level that a Christian needs to understand and a Christian needs to search his or her life and say, where is my identity? Is it in that I never miss church or I give a lot of money or I'm, I don't do this or don't do that? Where is your identity? Who are you known as? See, Paul says in verse four, I'm not boasting of my personal achievements. In fact, it's just the contrary is what he's really trying to bring across here. He's trying to destroy the argument of those who oppose Christ alone salvation. He's saying, look, you may have confidence in your flesh, you who are working your way into my beloved Philippi church. You may have some confidence. But let me tell you what God had to kill in me. That's really where I think he's going. And God has to do that. He has to put to death things in us, things that are idolistic, things that we will bow down to, things that we want to be known for. He will bring those up and he will put them to death in our life. And Paul says these are destructive. And so he starts down through a list here. In fact, he says, if you have confidence in the flesh, I have far more. And I think what he's doing is he's giving a testimony. If they think you were bad, let me tell you where I'm coming from and where God has brought me. And he's and in no way, if you study the life of Apostle Paul, in no way is he boasting in his flesh here. He has a point to this. But the point is to be understood through these different facets in the context of the first century church. So verse 5, he starts out with this phrase, circumcised the eighth day. See that there? Well, what does that mean? Well, it means he, he wasn't converted into Judaism. He, he wasn't an outsider to Judaism. He was an insider. In fact, he was born into it. And everything about his life was marked with religion. So much so that it was by birth he was a Jew, and he kept all the Jewish rituals from birth, is really what he's saying in that. You want to find the check the box as me? I'm it. And it started when I was eight days old. He's listing these credentials of religious life. Circumcised on the eighth day was basically saying this in so many words. He's saying, my sins were cut away from me at birth. And I am righteous because I wear the badge of Judaism circumcision. That's what that meant. You're now in the covenant. Your sins are washed away. 
That's why we're careful with things like infant baptism. And some of the things we're very careful with that. Be careful. We do not want to wear some badge that we wear that is apart or separated from Christ alone. And Paul says, look. I was born into this religious life. From my eighth day, I lived religiously. Paul included this act in his list because he wants everyone to know that it is impossible to gain salvation through ritualism. You don't get it because you did this and you did that and you did this and you did that. Here's another phrase. He says of the nation of Israel, a fascinating little phrase, Paul is referring to this chosen group of people. And the nation of Israel is God's chosen people, original chosen people. And certainly, you know, as a church, we're called the elect, the chosen of God. And, and there is an attention turned to the church now. And, and he is bringing his bride together. And when he has that bride complete, he will bring us out and then turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. But Paul says here, look, I am of the nation of Israel. Jews took great pride in this. It was a massive obstacle to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize who we are? We're God's people. And, and, and that's why it's so difficult. We study the book of Acts. One of our home groups is that we we're just talking about before the service, studying the book of Acts. And here, God saving Gentiles. And it's shaking the core of some Jews who are professing faith. They're going, wait a minute. And the apostles are coming back and they're going, hey, Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit, meaning they're getting saved. It was very, very hard. The only way in was through circumcision and Sabbath and, and keeping this and keeping that. That was the way to the kingdom, not through this Jesus. Look with me at Romans chapter 9. I want to show you a text here, how powerful Judaism was Romans chapter 9 really hear the heart of and the soul of Paul for his nation? Paul says, This I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I think I read something like that. I want to hear what this is about, right? Why is this man of God, the apostle to the church, having such great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart? It says, for, for, verse three, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. That's the word anathemed, eternally damned. Separate it from, from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinship according to the flesh. Wow, that's a heart of a missionary. He knows he can't give up his salvation, but he says, if I could give it up, I would want them to come to Christ, is what he's saying here. Verse four, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Wow, that's the nation of Israel. Look what they were given. They were becoming adopted children. Remember, God says you were stiff-necked and hard. You were not a great people, but I made you mine. And they went on to reject him. So I adopted you in and you left me. He, he, the scriptures are full of the abandonment of God. Hosea and Gomer, a, a prostitute taken in and forgiven and brought in. And yet she rebels against and leaves. We, we see this all through the scriptures. 
They were shown the glory of God. What, what does that mean? It means that he, he was a pillar of fire before them. He, he trounced their enemies. He, he did amazing things. His glory filled the temple and they all fell before him. They all saw that, but yet that still fell away. The covenants were given to them. God promised Abraham that he would, that he would accomplish what he could not accomplish, that he would bring the nation of Israel into a promised land, not only on earth, but in eternity. They were given the law. What a privilege. You know, that's why I love that little story about the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus. She wasn't given the law. She wasn't even allowed to look at the law. You're a Canaanite, we have nothing to do with you. What privilege they had. God showed his character to them through the law. They were given temple services and promises. For verse five, who are the fathers from whom is the, is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God bless it forever. He just kind of breaks into praise now as he's speaking about all this stuff. Verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Uh-oh. There's a change. You don't get your ticket punch just because of your last name. Hmm. And notice what he goes on to say here, verse 7. Nor are they called all, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So here Paul begins to say, look, I understand the nation. And as you turn back your text, he says, look, I was of the nation of Israel. I was given the covenants. We were given the law. We were given the promises. We, we know who we are as a people. And I was proud of that. And that pride led me into deception. Paul's view of salvation was not based nationally any longer. It was because of Christ. Notice quickly, he says, from the tribe of Benjamin. This is an interesting one. I, I just wanted to develop some of this because sometimes we read through this and we don't quite understand the weight of what Paul is saying. The tribe of Benjamin is an amazing tribe. If you read in the middle of Judges, somewhere around chapter 20, somewhere in there, Benjamin has got very bad as a tribe. They're... They're into homosexuality, they're into false worship, they're into all kinds of things. And they do some very wicked things, and you can go read on it. The nation, the rest of the tribes hear about it, and they mount this great army, and they wipe them out completely, men, women, and child, down to 600 men who are hiding in a cleft of a rock. And God stops them. He says, I don't want my tribe completely wiped out. And you read through the text and they provide 400 virgins for them and give them to them so the nation uh, would never lose this tribe and the nation is rebuilt and uh, the tribe's rebuilt and so forth. And, and because of that, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was very careful. They do fall into sin later on, but they're very careful of idol worship and some of those things. And Benjamin is known for ones who stick close to King David's dynasty. Because they didn't want to fall like that again. And so when Paul says, I'm of the tribe of Gen Benjamin, they all knew what he was talking about. Oh, yes, they remember the, de the depth of their sin. There's other things about that. Benjamin was one of two favorite sons of Jacob. 
Joseph and Benjamin, you remember, you know, they took them up and they went up to Egypt to get food and, and uh, they wouldn't let, I think it's Simeon, wouldn't let, they said, well, we're going to keep him and send him back. And he goes, well, I'm not sending Benjamin. Basically, Simeon could rotten, you know where, <laughs> I'm not sending Benjamin. You see some of the favoritism um, that was sinful on Jacob's part, but they, they remembered that. If you were a tribe of Benjamin, you would say, I was loved by Jacob. You would say that. When the, when, the, when the nation was divided up as they conquered the countries, Benjamin was given the land that had Jerusalem in it. And they would hold to that. They would say, look, we have Jerusalem within our borders. The city of God. And they would proud, proudfully boast that. When the northern tribes fell into idolatry and God sends the Assyrians and he wipes out those ten northern tribes and takes them off the di- discipline into Assyria, Judah and Benjamin stood and held to the Davidic dynasty that David had left. And they would remind people of that. There's so much. Mordecai, remember Mordecai, Esther's uncle? Benjamite. Tough. Stood. Why, why, the, why the evil king was about ready to wipe out, or, or evil king's um, henchman, hangman, hang, hangman, was about ready to wipe out the Jews. He stood against them, knowing it could cost his life. So they would use this term. But these were great points of pride for Paul before his conversion. When you look at these first three, you notice that they are Paul's heritage, things he's earned from his parents. But notice the next four are things that he believes he's achieved. He says a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had a strictly held to Jewish tradition. Now this takes a lot of effort. A tremendous amount of effort. This is straining the gnat. To be a Hebrew of Hebrews means that you did not let the Roman Greco world affect your traditions. When the rest of the Hebrews were starting to give in to the rest of the things of the world, you did not give in. When you were in line at Costco, you stayed kosher. You didn't give in. You were a Hebrew. Paul says he studied under the Hebrew teacher Gamaliel. He's noted for that. He was a great Hebrew teacher and he stood underneath him and learned underneath him. In fact, I wrote in my notes, I think Paul's saying he was the poster boy of Hebrews. So if there was a poster of Hebrews and you go, what does a Hebrew look like? Paul's picture was on it. And he took great pride in that. A very sinful pride. He says next, uh, as to the law of Pharisee. <laughs> wow. There's some interesting verses. Acts 23.6 says this. He's before the council of Jews. He's on his way to Rome And he says, brethren, I am a Pharisee. Then he says this, a son of Pharisees, plural. So what does it tell you about Paul? That means he was in succession to Pharisees. Pharisees did not marry outside of Pharisee families. You stayed within the family because all the orchards and homes and all the power you had, you did not want that to get outside your family in the day of Paul. He says, I was a son of a Pharisee's. I'm in a long line of them. When he stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 5, he says, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. That means not only did he keep the Ten Commandments, he kept the entire law plus all the traditions, and they wrote a tradition for every day of the year, 365 traditions. And I kept them all. 
Pharisees were a group that were raised up between the intertestinal periods. They had watched God bring judgment against their nation. The Greeks had come in and mocked them and sacrificed a pig on their altar. They had burned babies. They had joined the world. They knew they were wrong. And the Pharisees came up, this group up to probably around 6,000, Josephus says, of men that said, we will not live as the pagan world anymore. And it started as a good idea. The problem is they did it under their own strengths. It wasn't for the glory of God. And we begin to see that group of Pharisees in the life of Christ. And they were devoted to a legalistic rule of Judaism. And Paul says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Look at verse six with me. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. What does that mean? Well, the Pharisees were known to oppose any religion that didn't agree with them. In fact, they were known to kill people. Peter was a zealot. That's why he had a blade on him in the garden. They were known to go and stick knives in the back of soldiers and anybody else that opposed their nation and their religion. They were zealous. They were extremely zealous for Christ. And there was nothing more offensive to the nation of Israel, to Judaism, than this movement of Christ alone called the way, the church. It was offensive to them. Because Christians were saying that you get to God, you get to the kingdom of God through belief in Jesus Christ alone. And they're going, what about my kosher? What about my family heritage? This doesn't count for anything? And it, and it just rubbed them terribly wrong. And they opposed it. And Paul opposed it greatly. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, said, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in the prison. The word dragging is a literal word. It's used in John. Uh, God drags us to himself. That means you didn't want to go, but you got drug off. And they really didn't care about your health. In the text that we opened with, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says that Saul breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. See, as to zeal, everybody knows how the Pharisees felt about the church and about that Jesus. Paul clearly here is not boasting, though, over these statements. He is one who says later in his conversion, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle. And he says this, because I persecuted the church of God. I know he knew he was forgiven, but he still hurt about what he did to Christ's bride. I, I want to be very clear that we don't go back and we weep over our sins to the point of uh, destroying our lives. I don't think Paul's doing that, but I think he sees the gravity of our sin and his sin to the church. Earlier he said in Galatians 1.13, he says, you have heard from my former manner of life in Judaism how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. Paul heard over these things. And he's reminding, you think you're good? You think you got a list of things that you can put up? Let me tell you how I persecuted the church. The last statement, personal statement here is found in the end of verse six. It says, righteousness which is in the law found blameless. 
Paul's saying that if you have observed my life, you would have found my behavior flawless. I think he was probably right. There's another man in the Bible that said the same thing. You guys remember him? Called the rich, young ruler. And don't think for a, a minute that the rich young ruler was blowing smoke when he showed up to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I have done all these things from my youth. I, I don't doubt that he did. And I don't doubt that Paul is correct and he's saying, look, I did these things. I came with my own self-righteousness. In their own mind, they believed they had done it all. They had lived these perfect lives. They had convinced themselves of this. Paul says, you want to boast about your flesh? I have more. But look at verse 7, and we'll end with this this morning, and then really delve into this next week. Verse 7 says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Our second thought here is Christ changes our redemptive perception. See, before Paul's conversion, his perception of redemption was accomplished through his inherited righteousness and his achieved righteousness. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Before conversion, he says, my righteousness came from my inherited righteousness, this nation of Israel, this circumcision, this, this tribe of Benjamin, and it came from my righteous behavior, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a, a law-keeping Pharisee, a zealous persecutor of anybody who came against Judaism, and I was found blameless in the righteousness pertaining to law. His perspective was he was righteous because of those things. In verse 7, he says, it's all lost. After his conversion, he says, I count it, perfect tense, everything, past, present, future, all of those things, I count them as loss. They're worthless to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. To knowing Christ. I think verse 7 focuses in on salvation. I think it focuses on on coming to truly know the Lord Jesus Christ as takes place in Acts chapter 9. But verse 8, and where we'll spend a lot of our time next week is in verse 8 where it says, more than that. Uh-oh. There's more to knowing Christ than just coming to salvation. As great as that is, and, and as momentous as that is to us as believers, that day we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says there's even more to that. There is the daily stuff of knowing Christ, and, and that's where we'll spend our time. And I hope to convince you that Jesus is worth living for post-salvation. In fact, if you're only holding to knowing Jesus because of salvation, I would encourage you to check your faith to see if it's of the Lord. Because knowing Christ is much more than just, oh, hey, I got my sins forgiven, I don't have to go to hell. It is a personal eternal relationship that we are ever growing in daily, daily following our master. And that's what Paul's after here. So whatever things were gained to me, wherever hall of fames that I was on, 
And believe me, he was a Hall of Fame Pharisee. They're worthless to me. I count it all as lost. So as I close this message, and, and again, I can't wait over the next couple of weeks to just keep digging through this and learning, I want you to stop just for a moment in your own silence and, and ask the Lord, is there anything, is there anything that you have brought to the table for salvation? And you say, well, no, Scott, I believe in Jesus Christ alone. I, I get it, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. I'm all on board. But wait a minute. I want you to ask God, Lord, do I hold to anything? Is there any family heritage that I'm holding to? Any good works that I have done? Is there anything in my life that I'm trying to say Christ plus something? I promise you, you need to examine this. Because if it is, Paul says those things are worthless. They're worthless. And we need to denounce those. We need to say, Lord, I have nothing. And like the great old hymn writer said, em, 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 empty my, in my empty hand, I simply, how does it go? Oh, help me. Um, uh, <laughs> yes. I have an empty hand. And that's what you and I do. We, we don't go, here's a hand, God, and in it is years of heritage of the Menez family being Christians. Well, we actually don't even have that. <laughs> We're second generation people who follow Jesus. But, but we don't hold to that. We go, oh, 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 and, and here's to my offering I gave at Grace Bible Church. Take that and save me, God. Or, or here's to the fact that I'm not like my neighbors or the workers, or that, re, that self-righteous snuff that just likes to sneak in. Empty hand, I come. Simply clinging to a cross that Jesus did. That's what Paul's after in this text. And we'll dig into that more. Take a moment, and then I'll close in prayer, and Darren's gonna lead us in a song. Ask the Lord to reveal if there's anything you're holding on to. Father, there is a temptation by us to see ourselves more worthy of your salvation at times, Lord. And Lord, we're ashamed to say that because we have nothing. There's nothing in our hand that we bring, Lord. We don't bring our church attendance. We don't bring our good behavior we don't bring our do's and don'ts in that long list that we sometimes have mentally written down. Paul is shedding that from himself. He is making sure that the church in Philippi and us 2,000 years later know that there is simply nothing that brings us into the grace of God but the grace of God. So Lord, we need to be reminded of those truths. It makes our Savior so beautiful. It makes what God has done as he has chosen us to be his children so beautiful. It is not based on merit and effort. 
and family heritage. It, it, it doesn't matter, Lord. None of that matters. It's just pure grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to save us. And it causes us to sing, Lord. It causes us to preach this way and be serious about the Christian faith because we don't deserve it. And we sing how great of God we have. So Lord, I pray as we go through this over the next few weeks, as we start to understand what it means to truly know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, to get our minds around this, Lord, that you would help us be men and women, boys and girls that don't bring anything to the table. And Lord, our tongues will be loose to tell other people you don't have to line up in a certain way. You don't have to dress in a certain way. You don't have to eat in a certain way. Just come to Jesus. Confess your sins. Put your faith in one who can secure your eternity forever. And he will welcome you in as a good and faithful servant. So Lord, help us to believe that it is Christ alone, through grace alone. And we'll put our praise towards you for those things, Lord. Say this in Jesus' name. Amen.